I explain climate change as a security issue by uh, saying that it's a threat multiplier. It amplifies um, and increases many of the threats that we face around the world today. Hi, this is Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. This is the show to listen to if you want to understand the global refugee crisis and the causes and consequences of war. We've covered a lot this season, from the future of war to refugee resettlement, and we'd love to know what you think. Our favorite place to discuss this, as where all good, healthy debates go, is Twitter. I'm at Grant M. Gordon. And I'm at Agar Murthy. And we also love to hear from you via email. Drop us a note at displaced at rescue.org. And most importantly, please leave us a review. It helps us grow. You can do this on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on Displaced, we're chatting with Sherry Goodman. She's a senior fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center in the Environmental Change and Security Program and a former deputy undersecretary of defense. Last week with Jane McAdam, we heard about climate change and its impact on displacement from a human rights and humanitarian lens. And this week, we're looking to the opposite side of the spectrum to talk with somebody who thinks about this from the national security lens. These are the exact type of complementary angles that you need to use to really understand this issue. This was a really great interview. It took me back 10 years to when we were first working on climate change and trying to reframe it as a security issue. And Sherry was right at the forefront of that. We talked about the national security implications of climate change and how we actually mobilize a bigger constituency of non-environmentalists behind this issue. This was a really interesting interview because people who've been working on national security have often been the most vocal advocates for thinking seriously and taking seriously climate change. Sherry has been at the forefront of a lot of this for many years and has a lot of wisdom to share about what we can do and what needs to happen. So let's get to the interview. Here's Sherry Goodman. Sherry Goodman, thank you so much for being with us today. Pleasure to be here. So climate change and the way that climate change is affecting instability is a huge and naughty issue. And we're going to be tackling that through the interview today and our discussion. But just for somebody who doesn't know anything about the issue, what's the top line explanation? How do you explain this to your mother? Uh, well, thank you for that uh, question. So I I explain climate change as a security issue to my mother by uh, saying that it's a threat multiplier. It amplifies um, and increases many of the threats that we face around the world today, from terrorism uh, to instability, from political strife, uh, extreme weather events, sea level rise, increasing droughts, uh, storm surges, floods, hurricanes, wildfires, increased uh, disease spread, all of these pests, if you will, are making life more difficult for many people on the planet today. And when people don't have enough food uh, and water, when they can't support their families, uh, they either flee or they become vulnerable uh, to violent extremist organizations, terrorists, or others who will use them for their own purposes. And we're going to get into all the different mechanisms and ways in which climate change affects instability and displacement uh, shortly. But before we do, can you just give us a sense of the scale of the potential uh, effect of climate change uh, and particularly how that might vary depending on whether we're seeing a two degree, four degree, six degree warming? 
Well, we're already on a, a, a pretty steep uh, path. Uh, we would like to keep it towards two degrees, but we've seen just in the last decade or so much more serious extreme weather events all around the world. Uh, temperatures have already risen uh, by close to a degree in many places around the world. We're looking at sea level rise of potentially a meter or more in various places, making some coastlines uninhabitable. So we're already living in the new normal of a climate-changed world, and the issue is going to be you know, whether we can bring it down to a manageable level and whether we can use innovation, technology, and knowledge to reset our societies. And when you take a step back in and look at the distribution of the impact of climate change on political instability, are there specific geographies that you are particularly concerned about? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're, we're quite concerned about what's happening in uh, Southeast Asia, an area that's very populated, already has got a large, significant areas of political instability. And let's take Bangladesh and, and Pakistan as two examples. Bangladesh has some of the lowest lying coastline in the world in the most densely populated areas living um, really just or even below sea level. And already Bangladeshis are migrating um, in significant numbers towards India, which has built a fence to keep Bangladeshis out. It really is a disaster waiting to happen in the next big storm that will send people already impoverished from the coastal areas fleeing in even greater numbers uh, towards the Indian border. Uh, in Pakistan, you have a nuclear-armed country that's politically unstable, whose glaciers have been a major source of water for the country over many years that are now melting at a very rapid rate. Uh, contributing increasingly to floods in certain areas. And in other areas, uh, you face drought. Uh, so it's an, a country that already is unstable that is subject to further climate instability with increasing glacier-driven floods and also droughts. Now let's take the Pacific. Um, you know, there are many small island states in the Pacific small island countries that are already uh, looking at how they're going to move their entire populations uh, to higher ground because of a combination of uh, sea level rise, storm surge, erosion. And what will happen first is they'll probably lose their fresh water uh, on, on the small atolls or the small islands. And so many of the small island nations in the Pacific are already looking at how they maintain their sovereignty if they no longer have uh, their land on which to live. So that's that's really interesting. Those are kind of two examples that, uh, to an extent, kind of, I think, display some of the, the underlying variation um, and types of places that are affected by conflict. In, in one, I think you have kind of low-capacity areas that are experiencing more severe forms of climate change here, and particularly thinking about like the Sahel area in Africa um, and maybe some of those kind of smaller islands that um, just have less capacity. Compared to countries with higher state capacities but that may be experiencing relatively less severe forms of climate change, 
but that given those kind of high state capacities and the you know the military capacity that comes with that, um, when affected by climate change, may have the chance for it to escalate into something more quickly. And I think you know the example of Pakistan here um, is a is a perfect one. When you kind of look at those two different archetypes, um, it, you know, first is that a sensible way to kind of break it down? And and if so. Um, are, are, is, does one keep you up at night more than the other type? Uh, well, they're both deeply concerning, and it, it depends, you know, which tipping point is going to hit the first. You mentioned the Sahel, and, you know, this is a a region that's witnessed a dramatic reduction in, in mean rainfall uh, throughout the region uh, with increasing uh, high temperatures across Sudan, Chad, Niger, um, and these are countries that are already, and they also have very significant population growth. So these are countries with large populations, unable fully to provide water and, and food uh, in the traditional ways with increasing conflicts uh, among the traditional livelihoods of farming, herding, in some areas, fishing. And so... What what becomes you know what becomes the tipping point? Is it that um, the terrorist organizations, whether it's Boko Haram or ISIS, in different re- capture you know may hold use water as a weapon to hold vulnerable populations hostage and to compel them to comply with their demands, uh, act for their causes? Um, is it the next big you know extreme weather event? Um, in a critically important, strategically significant uh, region such as Pakistan or parts of South Southeast Asia, I'd say these are all areas that it's important for your listeners and for our global decision makers um, to pay attention to. We have um, gotten a little bit better in recent years in being able to reconstruct how past events have been driven in part by climate-fueled drought. For example, we know now uh, that droughts in Syria led to a massive exodus of farmers, herders, and agriculturally dependent rural families from the countryside to the cities. Um, And that was compounded by poor government governance. And, um, you know, there was a... And then, of course, uh, the conflict that has become the deadliest in our modern time has seized that region. But we didn't understand, I think, well enough before the conflict became deadly that it was the drought that was driving uh, populations into ever more congested areas, leading to civil unrest and instability. I think that what that example from Syria shows is that there are very different there are different pathways towards climate change causing instability. Because in that example, you're talking about drought leading to migration, and that migration then causing tensions and then some degree of conflict. Um, Can you just try and tease out the different types of effects that climate change have on instability, both the direct effects that are caused by climate change making places uninhabitable, either temporarily or more permanently, and the indirect effects um, that that occur, as we saw in Syria? Yes, absolutely. Of course, you have the direct effects of a a storm occurring and people fleeing. We saw that. Let's take uh, the Caribbean. Uh, in the hurricanes that have um, come in with increasing ferocity, intensity, rainfall, high winds uh, across the Caribbean and the southeastern part of the United States in recent years, that, uh, for example, 
in Puerto Rico and in uh, St. Martin drove many to have to flee their island when those storms came. Uh, and many came to the U.S. and other other regions. And that's a direct effect of a, let's say, a climate-fueled uh, storm or extreme weather event. Then you have the more indirect effect we just talked about of a drought driving people to migrate first within their own country from, let's say, a rural area towards a city. And that combined with political instability or lack of jobs, access to water in the in the uh, urban areas creates for further um, mayhem, civil unrest, leading to larger state-on-state conflict. Let's also take a more recent case, a a sort of multiple-order effect uh, that's occurring right now. Uh, We see in Venezuela, a country that has historically been oil-rich, abundant in in, in its natural resources, but is is, uh, uh, torn by political strife and and instability today with many Venezuelans who, who... uh, can trying to flee uh, their own country for lack of food, water, high prices, inability to feed their families. They're moving when they can towards some of the Caribbean islands. The Caribbean, over the last five or so years, uh, has become much more fragile due to these climate-fueled storms. They're now facing increasing fragility because they no longer have the same level of water resources and capacity Uh, to support both their existing populations. And when Venezuelans are now moving into uh, areas like Trinidad and Tobago and further up into the Caribbean, uh, those receiving countries are having a harder time accommodating uh, the migrating population. So that's, again, another order, another dimension of the impact of climate change. To pull up on on something that you kind of uh, briefly mentioned when you're talking about the Sahel, you had uh, talked about Boko Haram essentially using water as a weapon. Um, and oftentimes, I think you hear about the impacts of climate change as, as something that's much more passive, right? There's resource scarcity, and then that drives people to, mig- uh, to migrate, rather than kind of the framing is, as you were kind of noting, of an actor really leveraging that. So can, I would love you to kind of uh, tease that out a bit more and, and, and talk about what that actually looks like um, in some of these areas. Well, uh, in in some of these areas in uh, the Sahel and parts of Africa, we know that terrorist groups are exploiting uh, water and food shortages exacerbated by climate change, allowing them to more easily recruit, operate more freely, control ci- and control civil populations. They're increasingly using natural resources such as water as a weapon of war, sort of controlling access to it. So if they come into a region and then they begin to, uh, whether it's al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, ISIS, uh, they begin to control the levers of power in that region. Obviously, they have the arms, the weapons, and then as they could control the water resources, they can withhold it. And we've seen that happening now across parts of northern Africa. They can also target water resources as uh, the Mosul Dam in Iraq, for example, Uh, was threatened many times by ISIS and other actors in that region. Um, And so the climate change alone doesn't cause the terrorism, but it creates these conditions where terrorists can thrive because they can prey on the vulnerabilities uh, that exist within the society. 
And so the, the assumption there being that the fundamental change between, you know, kind of a, a prior world in which climate change wasn't having these deleterious effects and now is that beforehand resources were abundant and so it was just never a useful lever to pull to engage in strategic control over an area. Um, whereas now when there are fewer resources, it's a real soft point that uh, non-state actors or terrorist groups can, can really kind of push into. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back soon with Sherry Goodman. You're listening to Displaced and we're talking to Sherry Goodman. I mean, so far we've talked about how climate change can produce resource scarcity, which then can drive conflict. But climate change is also opening up new resources. Uh, I'm thinking particularly about the Arctic and how that's now creating a race for control there. Um, Can you say a bit more about how that particularly is a concern in terms of instability? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, the Arctic is, is a great example of a region that's of the world that we are, we now, has now opened up simply because of climate change. In the past, it was an area that was primarily the province of um, the populations that live there, the indigenous communities, and great powers operated through submarines and air power. And now we see increasingly that we have surface vessels transiting the region. Some of the greatest energy and mineral resources on the planet uh, may lie beneath um, the subsurface areas in, in the Arctic region. And we see even countries like China, which is not an Arctic nation, uh, now claiming that it's a near-Arctic state and an Arctic stakeholder Uh, wanting to extend the Belt and Road Initiative across the poles to create a polar silk road, uh, seeking greater investment uh, and influence, investment and influence across many Arctic nations from Iceland uh, to Greenland. Uh, Greenland increasingly becoming independent uh, from Denmark and an area that is seeing increasing population growth, tourism, uh, an investment of a variety of types. So this is an area um, that just in the last decade or so has become ripe for great power competition among China, Russia, the United States. And at the same time, we need to be aware that the Arctic is a vast uh, area, difficult to operate in. And even as the uh, shipping times increase as the sea ice retreats and the permafrost collapses, it still will be a dangerous region in which to operate. So the real near-term risks in this region are likely to be uh, an accident, some kind of shipping or tourist accident, or potentially an oil spill, all of which could have significant deadly consequences, and all of which will require the nations of the Arctic to cooperate together in any type of search and rescue mission or um, oil spill cleanup or prevention. So it's an area where there's growing competition, but there's also growing need to cooperate. So this is this is really interesting to me because I think another frame that you could take on um, on the way that the kind of Arctic is playing out is that it's actually quite positive. It's a fantastic opportunity to reduce the costs of trade, to increase the interconnectedness between a set of nations 
for trade. Of, of course, this is like Are you totally a climate change denier, Grant? I didn't realize no, I was working. This is totally with you. discounting the value of any nature. But but it's it's one of those things where, to me, it seems like some 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 of the impact of climate change is going to be. Uh, absolutely negative for its impact on humans. And again, like I'm, I'm noting that I'm absolutely discounting the value of, of nature and the environment here. Whereas when you look at kind of the way we're talking about the Arctic, this also actually seems like an area of opportunity if you're looking at it from a point of view of kind of connect in, increased economic connectedness. Well, it, it depends on, on who you're connecting economically. Let's, let's first start with the people who live in the Arctic, um, whose lifestyles, um, uh, you know, of the indigenous population have his traditionally been hunting and fishing, subsistence, uh, living, and much of that lifestyle is being disrupted by climate change uh, because, let's say, the sea ice is retreating, the waters are warming, that changes the fishing opportunities, the hunting seasons. Um, there are villages across the Arctic, uh, including in Alaska, that now are having to completely relocate. Um, you could call them the first generation of, of climate uh, migrants. They're relocating, and for example, in Newtok, Alaska, uh, up the river nine miles because the coastal erosion has become so significant that their fresh water source is no longer available uh, and and their barge and their dock their docks have been washed away, so this is a whole a whole village that is moving now. Are there opportunity? Does China see opportunities for shorter shipping times across the Arctic? Absolutely. Is there opportunity to innovate in terms of greener, cleaner energy use in the in across the Arctic? Yes, I, I actually think there is. And certainly the Nordic countries are leading in innovation, clean energy technology and, and sort of storage, let's say um, there's a lot of computer and, and um, a data storage that's available in the cold regions. So there definitely are economic economic opportunities if if as they are pursued with an eye towards developing, a sustainable future uh, for the region. The Arctic feels like an example of something that's a change that's happening right now and various different powers are jostling for influence in anticipation of it opening up even further. But when you look at the various different climate change impacts and the mechanisms we've talked about, what do you think are sort of short to to medium-term risks over the next five to, say, 15, 20 years? And what are more long-term risks um, 30 to 50 years out? Okay, well, um, you know, the short to medium-term risks... Um, let's say in the Arctic, we were just talking about those short-term risks are a shipping or tourist accident or an oil spill. Uh, those are becoming very real risks that were less so um, before there was increased human activity. In many coastal areas, the extreme weather events, the climate-fueled hurricanes, uh, are causing increasing damage to populated urban areas. Those risks from the hurricane seasons, which have become very severe in the United in the United States in the, in the last several years, those risks are continuing to mount. We see larger and larger losses of both life and property um, every year. And so those those we're living in that world right now. Um, some of the longer term, you know, the medium term risks are that increasing drought uh, in certain regions is going to change um, agricultural practices. 
and those you know the, it's possible to adapt to changing climates agriculturally it just depends whether the region has the wherewithal uh, to do so israel turned the desert you know green and there are it's possible to change farming practices agriculture for example is often one of the most water inefficient sectors of the economy there are opportunities and there are many interesting new technologies and innovations coming along uh, that will both help lift millions out of poverty in uh, the energy poverty that exists across parts of India and Africa that is coming over the next several decades as people become more wired and more and have energy and water use if it's done smart with, for example, solar powered water pumps as opposed to um, that that enable people in small villages across Africa to be able to get water closer to where they live, uh, innovate um, and maintain their villages. I think those those types of innovations are going to be very important. Uh, then in the longer term, you know, the risks of an extreme climate extreme tipping point, such as the Greenland ice sheet uh, melting or parts of the West Antarctic breaking off and causing a significant sea level rise uh, within a matter of years. Uh, those are potentials if we don't uh, sort of curb uh, climate emission, curb greenhouse gas emissions and bring them down closer to the objective of the Paris Agreement towards 2C in the next several decades. It's an ambitious goal. It's possible. We really need almost the next Marshall Plan now to mobilize a complete action on, on behalf of our societies to make the energy transition into advanced, low-carbon energy. So you were previously the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Environmental Security. And I, I think one of the things that at least from my perspective, you see in, in some of the climate change debates is that uh, the military actually seems to have some of the most kind of clear-sighted projections and take it more seriously than many of the other institutions in the landscape. I'm wondering if you can take us through the time when you were kind of stepping into this role, which was, you know, uh, before I think climate change had become such kind of common parlance and, um, and discuss how it was to kind of drive forward the importance of some of the kind of early signals of climate change in um, in the defense sector. In uh, 2007, I formed the um, Military Advisory Board, the CNA Military Advisory Board, a group of, at the time, a dozen U.S. generals and admirals retired who had served at the highest levels of their service, armed, former Army Chief of Staff, former Pacific commander in the Navy, former Marine Corps commander in the Middle East, uh, and, and many other, former head of the United States nuclear Navy. And we spent a year uh, learning from the world's leading climate scientists. And uh, frankly, when we started out, many of the generals and admirals were, were skeptical. They said, well, we don't know anything about climate change. We're war fighters. Uh, and Sherry, I only came here to do this because I work with you in the past and I'll, okay, I'll, I'll sit here for a little while and, and listen to what you and your group have to say. So we brought in the world's leading, you know, climate scientists, meteorologists, 
uh, oceanographers in the Navy and elsewhere. We we traveled to London, uh, met with the British Med Office and other others. Uh, after a year of study, we concluded that uh, climate change is indeed a national security threat, and it's a threat multiplier. And we released a report in the first report, National Security and the Threat of Climate Change, in 2007, uh, which preceded the first debate in the UN Security Council led by the um, British Foreign Secretary at the time to consider climate change as a national security and foreign policy matter. Um, immediately following uh, the release of that report, the U.S. Congress directed on the defense authorization bill that climate change be considered in the national security strategy um, and planning of the United States uh, and in intelligence assessment, assessments. And since that time, uh, it has been considered in the president's national security strategy, the national defense strategy, the, a document called the Quadrennial Defense Review, and there have been a number of intelligence community assessments as well. Uh, the numbers have grown of military leaders and national security officials from both sides of the aisle and internationally, in fact, in The Hague at the Global Planetary Security Initiative Conference, uh, we announced the creation of an international military council on climate and security led by the U.S. Center for Climate and Security, the U.S. Center for Climate and Security, which uh, has become a leading uh, American organization with a, whose advisory board includes uh, over a dozen U U.S. generals and admirals. We, um, my partner in this is a Dutch former chief of defense, General Tom Middendorp. Uh, we have uh, two Dutch think tanks, Klingendal and the Hague Center for Strategic Studies, as well as a French defense think tank, IRIS, interests from militaries um, around the world now. And so we're, we're broadening this effort as we see more and more militaries recognize that they are operating on the front lines of climate change. So Sherry, I think I was actually involved in writing the speech of the Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, about climate security that you mentioned back in uh, 2007 or 2008. And one reflection from my time in the UK government, first in the Environment Ministry and then in the Foreign Office, is that we did for a while reframe climate change away from being just a purely environmental issue. We commissioned the Chief Economist at the Treasury to write a big report, the Stern Report, on the economic costs right. of climate change. Exactly. The security and intelligence establishment came out with really strong warnings. And that was great in that period just before the financial crash. And then once that happened, the environmental issues got really relegated from public debate. And if I think now, while there are lots of efforts to talk about climate security and, and broaden the, um, the constituencies of interest, it doesn't really feel like it's getting traction. And I'm just interested in your view on uh, how do we actually build that coalition including security and defence actors, which probably are necessary if we're going to elevate this issue up to the threat level that it deserves. Well, yeah, I mean, we've sometimes said that uh, climate change is, is too important to leave just to the environmentalists, but that's because it's a whole of society issue. And all, uh, you know, we need an all hands on deck approach. So, I, you know, I, I think that the security sector, military leaders certainly get it. And I think increasingly elected leaders understand that that is the case. In the United States, uh, in the last two years, under a Republican-controlled Congress and a Republican president, 
there have been a number of provisions on the defense bill addressing the national security implications of climate change and characterizing climate change as a national security threat. Now, is that enough to mobilize a whole of society effort? I think we're headed for, you know, a substantial debate with the new Congress, some of whose members have uh, advanced a Green New Deal approach. Some of that is very broad. Uh, Some of it is going to focus primarily on the climate and energy dimensions uh, of that. You know, I, I think that we're moving towards that. We're moving more towards that tipping point. So as um, new energy sources also gain more political traction, whether it's uh, wind, solar, new nuclear, I mean, we we can't move to a low-carbon energy future without including um, safe uh, and modern sources of of nuclear energy. And I think that's going to be a piece of this discussion as well. Sherry, we've focused this interview on how climate change might, uh, might cause instability either directly or indirectly. But one final question is about how the path to getting to averting climate change, and particularly through decarbonizing the economy, can itself cause a lot of instability. If I think about how um, the oil price price crash in recent years has affected countries like uh, like like Venezuela now, um, we could see a rapid shift to a low carbon economy also cause a lot of problems, particularly for oil dependent uh, nations like Nigeria, Russia, Venezuela. What's your thought on how we manage that transition and avoid uh, the decarbonisation of the global economy becoming also another driver of instability? Wow, what's a, so what an excellent and complex question. Yes, well, I, you know, economies that are overly dependent on um, one source, uh, one sector, uh, particularly if it's the oil or fossil sector, need to you know, now begin to diversify. So we're seeing, you know, some of the Middle Eastern countries beginning to, like the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, already beginning to look at diversifying their economies. Obviously, yes, they have a long a long way to go there and they're affected. They have other, you know, cultural and social factors at play. Diversifying is important. Nigeria, for example, is a country with a lot of risks in it, uh, obviously also one that is very fossil dependent, one that's climate vulnerable, uh, one that's affected both by you know rising seas and saltwater intrusion in its coastal areas, drought, uh, ISIS terrorists in 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 its north um, east regions. So, what we need is diversifying off of b- one particular energy source. And doing that on a trajectory that's manageable, you know. I just want—I want to make one, actually, one more point, which yeah. I, I thought about as you were doing this. And so, if we could go back on just for a second, absolutely. Um, you know, um, I, I'm the daughter of Holocaust refugees, and um, so I grew up with an awareness that people can be displaced, um, and that assuming uh, that harm won't come to you is is never a good assumption. And I think there are many ways in which today we are living uh, in the same era of late, of the late 1930s where we see that the forces of change, whether it's extremism, nationalism, populism in its most virulent forms combined, 
with the climate changes have put us in a very um in a very vulnerable place uh and so my awareness is is that we need to be um we need to pay attention to this we need to reset ourselves and our expectations in a way that recognizes uh, that we can all be displaced. Sherry Goodman, thank you so much for being with us today on Displaced. It's been a pleasure. That was Sherry Goodman, Senior Fellow at the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. If you want any more on the topics we discussed on the episode today, check out our show notes at www.rescue.org slash displaced. Also, check this out. The Vox Media Podcast Network is conducting a listener survey to better serve you. It'll just take you five minutes, and we'd really appreciate your opinion. Take the survey at voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. And remember, you can and should tweet us at Grant M. Gordon and at Argo Murthy, and email us too and displaced at rescue.org. At Vox Media, Displaced is produced by Megan Cunane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter with extra help from Gabe Graben. Gold Arthur is our senior producer, and Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio. At the LLC, Anna Fewer is our researcher, and special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sikorsky, and Ben Moskowitz. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.